Yo, what's up? Today I met with Jeff Dan. He's the UK's premier mushroom foraging man. When it comes to mushroom foraging, he literally wrote the book on it, Edible Mushrooms. His book on identifying and foraging mushrooms is a great resource for anyone interested in foraging, bushcraft, wild food, mushrooms, and fungi. We had a really interesting chat down in Hastings. Um, I went to his house, met his dog Luna, and we had a really fascinating discussion about fungi, about mushrooms, about where to pick them, where to find them, how to be careful about not getting poisoned, uh, and the right way to get into foraging for wild foods. It was really fascinating chat. I hope you enjoy it. Please welcome Jeff Dan. In terms of the, the the cold snap, was that has that affected the the mushrooms then? Because this is the seasonal. This is when it kind um, of starts. No, off, it hasn't it? really affected the fungi much. Uh. Um, there's not that many fungi around this time of the year anyway. Um, yeah. The the there are some fungi that fruit through the winter. Right. Uh, which actually tend to some of them are around at any time of the year. But some of them specifically in the winter. Yeah. But they've already fruited by now, so they they weren't affected by an additional late uh, cold snap. The okay. spring fruiting mushrooms only starting about now anyway, so right. and they haven't been delayed. Um, in fact, there seems to have been quite a good year for morels. There's quite a lot of people fruiting photos of morels. The other really um, important spring fruiting mushroom is St George's mushroom. Oh yeah, you're saying that came come, out, they come yeah. out on St George's Day. Um, uh, I have seen some photos of them. I haven't been out looking for them yet, so they were reported about a week ago, which is about a typical time for them to turn up. So. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, no, no, it, but there's some other things are late. The plants are late. Mm. Most, okay, most, yeah, most yeah, of the plants yeah. are, are, are running late, that's for sure. So what you, I guess the way you, a forager, I know you forage for other things as well, but for the mushrooms, you, I suppose you start this time of year and then can you kind of preserve them to some extent over, uh, for the, you know, the winter when, they, when you're not going to... Um, we can do, but there's not usually uh, a sufficient glut of spring fruiting fungi mm. there's, there's a mini mushroom season in spring but there's not that much around so usually mm. what you find in spring you use in the autumn is is when you're likely to when the season's peaking in the autumn you can find far more than you need mm. um, I see okay so that's like the perfect that's the perfect time to go is um, September yeah and that is when you would tra traditionally if you've got right. a glut of something and dry them or, or possibly pickle them off cook them and freeze them or something because I know you in addition to obviously writing the, your, your books and it was incredibly tough to get hold of the book as we've talked about and you, you're obviously selling really well which is great you also run the tour you run sort of mushroom foraging um, tours as well yeah I mean I should correct well not correct but clarify what you just said about yeah. the book being hard to get hold of you you tried to get hold hold of the book just as the first print run ran oh, out before okay. the second second edition came out. So okay, it was well, great. a window so of about be, six yeah. weeks when it was hard to get hold of. Before yeah. then, it was easy to get hold of, and from going forward, it would be easy to get hold sure. of. It was just at that point that the the, the, yeah. the, the publishing company had, had gotcha. underestimated how how quickly the first print yeah. run would sell out. Um, <clears throat> point being, I suppose it's it's a great book. It's an amazing resource. I mean, I'm not don't know much about mushrooms, but I read um, you know through, it's amazingly very well written obviously as well as having all the photos of all the different um species um which is which is great and obviously there was a lot of demand for the book and um hence why the initial series yeah the, the, the problem is also i think the difficulty in for the publishing companies they i mean i did tell them but they perhaps didn't believe quite the extent it would happen the sales of this book are very much skewed to the autumn. Book mm. sales are, are, are more sell more in the autumn anyway because there's a run up to Christmas. Mm -hmm. But with a mushroom book, especially a mushroom identification book, because that's the fungi season, yeah. basically 
you know, eight tenths, four fifths of the, of the of the sales of the book happened in, in, in between September and, and, and December. Um, so at this time of the year, it sells, you know, on Amazon, it's selling like one or two copies a week. At the height of the, of the autumn, it was, it was selling you know, 10 copies a day. Uh, and, and I think it was hard for them to, when it, 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 during most of last year, they were looking at the, the rate it was selling and they were sure mm. they'd have plenty to last them through Christmas. But by the time, yeah. at the end of September, that they realised they were going to run out, it was too late to, to, to get the next lot printed oh. and, and, and in, in, in India and, and arrive in the country. In country, yeah. Well, the, the whole the magic of Amazon, I guess, that is like all the, it's complicated stuff these days, I guess. Um, and in terms, of, I know you were, you, obviously previous incarnation, you were an IT uh, professional. No, 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 She uh, likes me too much yeah, now. She yeah. loves me now. Yes. She was barking before. Yeah. Come on, she out of the way. Um, so tell us a bit about how you got into, how you first got into this. I know you taught well, yourself a lot That's a long it. story. Um... I first got into, well, I was into wildlife from a very young age. I grew up in a, on, on the North Downs and a piece of, and backing onto countryside, so woodland all around me. Um, I particularly got into mushrooms in my late teens when I went looking for a hallucinogenic variety. Uh, and in actual fact, I found it quite difficult to find any hallucinogenic mushrooms, but I did find lots of other things. Right. And so, and somebody gave me a copy of Roger Phillips' first edition of Roger, Roger Phillips' mushroom book, which was the first book that had, you know, really good photos and some basic mm. edibility information. Before that, teaching yourself to, to, to go out looking for edible mushrooms was almost impossible because there just wasn't a, a book good enough to do it. Um, yeah. So uh, for a couple of years, in actual fact, I just tried to identify what I found using that, and you know, eventually I did find the magic mushrooms. Um, uh, right. I was a software engineer then for, for the next, I don't know, 12 years, something, uh, and it was just a hobby, going out looking for mushrooms. Um, did you, Kathy, did you know Jeff at that point? Were you involved yeah, as well? Or? We, we met... Uh... 2012. Okay, so you weren't going out on these no, forays then? No, no, no. no. Um, I mean, we can tell you about that story as well. It all links in with old 2012 stuff, but that gets a bit... Oh, really? A bit okay. hairy. <laughs> okay. um, so, uh, yes, I was a software engineer for 12 years, uh, working on flight simulators and similar bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, I was made redundant in 2005... Okay. And had a lot of equity in my house, no family, no commitments, and I just thought, well, actually somebody else I was talking to having a fag break said that he was going to go to university, and he had a mortgage and a family, and I thought, well, what a big mortgage and family, mm. if you can go to university, I can. Mm. And so I decided to go off and study philosophy, which mm. absolutely wasn't a career move, I just wanted to do it. Um... I mean, there's a background to that as well, but uh, the short bit of the story, the short version of the story is when I finished that, uh, I had trouble getting back into computing. My heart wasn't in it, and I was competing with fresh young things out of university who were actually asking for less money than I'd been on three years beforehand. And I kind of took various temporary part-time computing-related jobs, but... Um, uh, somebody had started a website um, called Mild, Wild Mushrooms Online that where people could go, and this was before Facebook had really taken off, mm. where people could go and post pictures of mushrooms. And, and 
I decided that the year that I finished the autumn, I finished 2008, just for a personal project to go out and hunt Sussex countryside for everything that I've never found but I thought I should have found. And this website appeared and I was just practicing my identification skills by kind of trying to work out what people had posted and, and, and help it. And anyway, the person who ran that website noticed that basically I was the only person there who knew what I was talking about, even vaguely. Yeah. And he said, well, if you want to write, uh, take people on, on mushroom identification walks, I'll, I'll promote you for free if you write articles for my website. And since I wasn't properly employed at that point anyway, I just thought, well, you know, I haven't got nothing to lose here. I'm, yeah. Why not give it a shot? Um, and so, and it, you know, that's how it happened. For the first two years, he, I got my business through through that website, um, put my own website together, and it just, well, it, it sort of, it mushroomed. <laughs> um, it, it, it took on a life of its own, really. Um, uh, I've, 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 I started collecting pictures thinking one day I might write a book, but it was only a vague plan. And apart from that, it's mm. just who, whoever happened to contact me and whatever happened, mm. it, 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 it had a life of its own. Amazing. Well, I mean, that's an amazing story as well, just because you obviously weren't enjoying being under the fluorescent lights and it, or, to, or to more or less an extent doing the, the office job, you know, crammed in. The... I didn't enjoy it. Well, people, actually, working on flight simulators, you might think it was a pretty good job. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like a, it's video games, but better. Yeah. You know, they're amazing devices. Yeah. But my heart wasn't in it. I was mm. also working for the military, making things like tank simulators, living in Brighton. Gosh. And um, if you tell people you're working for the military, you tend to get yeah. raised eyebrows. <laughs> and, you know, I'm into environmental issues as well. So commercial flight simulators has got its, you know, planes being not exactly environmentally friendly. Mm. My heart wasn't in it at yeah. all. Um, and, you know, I was just, do you live to work or do you work to live? Yeah. Uh, and I was definitely... But I think I think when you're in that though, when you're you know you're earning a decent amount and 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 even if you're spending all that money, you just feel like it would be irresponsible mm. to just walk away from it and take a total leap in the dark. Study philosophy, for example, you know it, it seems like a very risky thing to do, and and we're, we're kind of psychologically conditioned not to do it. Mm. But I just got to the point where I oh, I didn't care anymore. I, did, I I had given up really caring about my future. I, I was just. We'll take one day at a time. I can do this. I'll do it. Um, and yeah, certainly after after spending three years studying philosophy, the idea of going back to mm. just doing an, an office job that I, I had, that my heart wasn't in it. I couldn't. I couldn't make myself out. If you're going to go to an interview, you've got to make yourself bright and bushy-tailed and look like you're yeah. really hungry for the job. And I couldn't honestly do yeah. that. Um, well, I guess the great thing for you, whereas the the, the vast multitude of, of, of people out there, or a lot of people out there, are, are were feeling probably feeling in a similar vein to to that about their you know jobs and the situation that they're in. But it's very difficult to have an opportunity or have the knowledge or have that esoteric skill which you can then escape, which then allows you to escape. Yeah, you and need live your dream. Yes, you which need, you obviously you need, you need two things. I think firstly you need the opportunity and you need enough money behind you or a lack of responsibilities mm. that you can do that because you're not desperately making sure you have to pay the mortgage right. every month um and you have to have some direction that you're going to go in you have mm. to have some some somewhere you're going to branch out and i think for a lot of people it's you know they don't know what that is for me it just happened to be this and there's a resurgence in mushroom foraging it's suddenly well foraging in general i just it happened to be 
at the right place in the right time yeah. uh, because I happen to have been doing it just when I started doing it 30 years ago nobody did it well, almost nobody uh, and now it's really popular so it's just lucky for me that there was uh, you know an opportunity and also for the book there was a, a gaping hole in the market because well it took a, a lot of walking and uh, to, to, to find those mushrooms I had to have a lot put a lot of time in on a shot to nothing I didn't know it was going to come to anything yeah um, but because it took so long to do it, to do it well, nobody had done it before. There, there, yeah. there was no really comprehensive book specifically aimed at, yeah. at people interested in, in edible mushrooms. Yeah. The most comprehensive books on the market at that point, when I started writing it, only covered less than 100 species. And there were so many things that they left out. And there were other books that covered fungi, but weren't from a foraging point of view so they either didn't have any edibility information or they covered, covered mm. thousands of species that weren't particularly of interest and so there was this big gap in the market it's not there now you know yeah having been filled it's been filled mm. i don't think another person's gonna yeah be silly enough to spend that much <laughs> wandering around the countryside looking for much well yeah and also i was going to say especially when you started out obviously that's quite a risky thing to go into the woods and sort of oh well I'm looking for magic ones but this one looks well, quite it's, magical it's, it's yeah. not risky well it's risky if you're a bit reckless and stupid um, provided you're sensible you follow some rules and basically the rule is unless you know what you it is uh-huh. that you're eating you don't eat it that you know there are there is a, a set of, of, of mistakes that happen that lead to people getting poisoned um one of which is wishful thinking, uh, and it, it, this is also part of the problem of having a book that doesn't have that. You know, there's, there's thousands of species of fungi out there, so six or seven times as many species as there are plants, mm. and loads still un- unidentified. As far uh, as uh, there, new yeah. ones are being found all the time, or species mm. that we thought was one being split, but into many. But uh, because people will go out with books only got forty species in it, um, mm. and they're looking for this one. Mm. They will find something that looks a bit like it, and there's nothing else in the book yeah. that looks more like it. And I was so like, they well, think well, it must, must be, be that one. And it, you've got this confirmation bias, and mm. you so mm. want to find mm. that one, and it looks a bit like it, and you fool yourself, mm. even if actual fact. It, it, and then it, if you actually sat down and looked at it carefully and read the description, mm. it'd be obvious that it isn't it. But it, when you see, see some of the historical mm. mistakes that have been made, even quite recently. Wishful thinking played this, you know, there's a really famous one of a guy called Nicholas Evans who wrote a book called The Horse Whisperer. Yes, yeah. Um, who he didn't have much experience at all of foraging for fungi, but he had previously p- picked seps, or penny buns is the English name, which is a mushroom that's got a sort of sponge underneath. It's a belete, really famous edible mushroom. Mm-hmm. And he'd gone on holiday to Scotland and... and some local woman the cottage was near the cottage he was staying came and said there's there's some chanterelles and seps up there in the woods and he and he got excited yeah I'm going to go and pick up some chanterelles and seps and he and he and he went up there and he found the chanterelles and he found these other things that actually don't look like penny buns at all they don't have sponge underneath they've got gills so you know this is like getting a lemon mixed up with an apple 
But he he convinced himself that they were some sort of Scottish sort of... And he wasn't set. experienced, was he? Totally yeah. inexperienced. Mm-hmm. He'd, he'd only ever done it about once or twice before. Mm-hmm. And not only did he, he confidently identify this and, and feed himself, he also gave some to his wife. And oh his kids turned them down. They said, we're not quite sure about that, Dad. <laughs> my kids were and, and And they were one of the deadliest mushrooms known. They were called the oh Deadly Webcat. And they routinely kill people and he ended up having to have a kidney transplant and his wow. wife had to have a kidney transplant but this mistake is just astonishing with hindsight that somebody could get these mushroom if you can get that mixed up with that mm. you can get anything mixed up with anything it's just total mm. failure to pay attention um, it was not an easy mistake to make it's, it's, it was a mm. you know you had to be almost willfully blind yeah. to make this mistake so uh, it, having said that, though, if you are, if you do pay attention and you don't let wishful thinking get in the way, and you're t- willing to take your time, mm. it's not that dangerous. I, you know, and it wasn't dangerous for me, but it took a very, very long time. I, you know, I only ate stuff if I knew exactly mm. what it was. You know, quite often I found it three or four times before mm. I was confident enough to yeah. eat it. And so, and I wasn't in any rush, you know, and uh, and so yeah, it, it wasn't dangerous, but mm. it t- takes a very, very long mm. time. And there's no testing kit, obviously. There's nothing you can sort of swipe. Uh, there's, well, there's no. Mm. There are chemical testing kits to help you identify fungi, but they don't. It's not a test to say whether it's mm. edible or not. They're not testing for toxins. Right. Mm. They're testing for other chemicals where where you've got a specific chemical that two closely related species, one of them will turn the chemical blue and the other one won't. Right. So that can distinguish mm. between those. But this is really for mycologists. Mm-hmm. My book doesn't go into the chemical testing because I'm assuming it doesn't go into the microscopy mm. either. Uh, because I'm assuming most people are going to go out looking for fungi to eat aren't going to be bothered to use chemical tests and, mm. and, and, and microscopes to, to, to work out which mushroom they've got. So I deliberately didn't use those mm. while I was putting the book together and, and I'm not expecting my customers to use them. Mm-hmm. So the answer is no, there's not a specific test that you can use. You just have to learn how to identify fungi. Mm. And I was also... thinking about all those other shortcuts that you hear about, like the bogus rules. So many bogus rules where people say... Oh, I've heard that. Yeah, it's all right as long as the gills are white, mm. or it's all right as long as it's growing on grass. Or uh, yeah, yeah, there are there are countless. Uh, I think in the book I've counted. There's about fifteen of them, and I've come across more since then of, of, of mm. rules of thumb that mm. people swear by. None of which work well. Just to clarify that, some of them work within a group. So if you know it's belong, mushroom belongs to a specific genus, mm. a rustula, for example. Then in that group, the, the rule is if it tastes like it's edible, then it's edible. If it doesn't, mm-hmm. if it doesn't taste like it's edible, then it's poisonous. Well, at least poisonous raw, you might be able to cook it and make it edible. But that rule only works if you know you've got a rustula. Well, also, okay, but then also if you say, right, this one tastes poisonous, I mean, it's a bit late at that stage, isn't it? Uh, well, spit it out. Um, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's another thing. Some mushrooms, like a death cat, for example, you wouldn't even want to put it in your mouth and spit it out Gosh, because the, yeah. the poison is so... It, toxic, even in tiny wow. amounts, mm. that you you would you'd probably end up with liver or kidney damage Goodness. just from doing that. But mm. rustlers don't do that. There's yeah. no seriously poisonous rustlers in, in in Europe. The worst they're going to do is give you a very violent stomach mm. upset. Um, so it's kind of assuming a certain level of knowledge before people start taking. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, don't so you have to know what a rustler is. You have yeah. to know. You have to know it's already a rustler before you mm. put it in your mouth. Mm. Um, and are there Quite a few, I mean, if you were to, is there a sort of idea of the ratio, but uh, one in a hundred is, is going to make you ill or is it less than that or is it 
well, very it, rare to find it's, it. It doesn't really work like that for the simple reason that some mushrooms are much more common than others. Uh, there's a hell of a lot. I've seen enough. There's about seven thousand species of larger fungi in the UK. Mm-hmm. Most of those are really rare, mm-hmm. uh, including a, a large number, number hundreds belonging to the genus called Cortinarius, which is the web caps, which were the ones okay. that Nicholas Evans in. But there's so many of those, and there's so, a lot of them only been recorded once or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, in the so, UK as well. In the UK, mm. so and, and even nobody eats any of them. But how many of them are, are, are seriously toxic? Uh, who knows? Because there's just they're just not, you know, nobody goes hardly anyone mm. eats web caps, and and they're too. So the answer is, uh, I'll try and give you a, a shorter answer. There, there's a maybe ten species of really poisonous fungi that can kill you, but of them only one is responsible for deaths in the UK since uh-huh. the advent of modern medicine. Um, oh, right. So it really is quite rare, quite rare that someone uh, goes and forages and finds something it, and gets... Well, it's, hard, it's hard to be sure of the exact yeah. figures because a lot of the time the people don't want it publicised. Since, since mm. the advent of social media, it's come to light that actually more people are involved in mushroom poisonings than we previously thought because, mm-hmm. because they kept the publicity out of publicity. But, but who kept but, the publicity? Uh, you mean because they're, they're embarrassed that they've yeah, been yeah, so daft? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah they, don't want, they don't want the newspapers right. telling their story. Um, uh, from what I can work out, it's, it's, it's probably one or two fatalities a year in the UK. Okay, so um, still, not that yeah. many. Um, yeah, certainly not often about people being on di- dialysis. Yeah, yeah. More, 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 more often they, they end up on dialysis and have to have a kidney fa- a kidney mm. transplant yeah. or something like that. But this is compared to you know in, in Italy every year it's more like a thousand. There's there's lots and lots of people mm. getting into trouble uh, because there's more people doing it. Right. And, and also, there's also a different attitude. In Italy, there's bravado. You're expected to know your mm. mushrooms, and no one wants to admit that their mushroom knowledge is deficient. So they go out and, yes, I know what that is. I Whereas see, yeah. in Britain, a lot of people mm. are terrified. They don't even want to touch the, mm-hmm, the thing. Mm. So, so there's much more caution in this country, so, which means a lot of fewer yeah. people get poisoned. Why, why do you think that is, that there's more of a caution? Is it because they truffles and the, the sort of culinary culture of Italy or do you think there's something else because I know on the continent there seems to be a lot uh, well the best truffles of all the white truffles are almost exclusively in northern Italy and a few places oh. around there uh, but uh, and northern Italy certainly you know it has a particularly good selection of, 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 of fungi but um, that's not enough to to explain it there are cultural, just long-standing cultural differences between between different parts of Europe uh, I actually go into this in the book. I uncovered a, well, I wasn't expecting to, but uh, um, while I was researching the book, there's, there is a. I come across, across a, 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 some research that links language families and, and fungi foraging attitudes. So, uh, in actual fact, it's speakers of, 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 of Latin Romance languages and, and, and Slavic languages of historically much more um, pro fungi foraging and. and Speakers of Germanic languages, Northern European languages, tend to be anti mm. anti fungi. Um, mm. This this goes back hundreds of years, so it's a long, long history of, of, of foraging in those places where it's been popular, and a long, long history of being mm-hmm. mycophobic in those places gotcha. where, where, where where it's mycophobic. Well, maybe it's partly sort of a polarizing effect whereby. If you have people who don't know anything about it, and then they're starting to learn, and someone dies in the village or whatever it is, they just totally we hate mushrooms and the, whereas the people who manage to get beyond that point without having an issue yeah if you absolutely if you people in your culture 
forest for mushrooms, then it's more likely you're going to have the, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it yeah. keeps itself going. So it's interesting that it's coming back, and as you as you mentioned already in the UK, people are getting more interested, and people are getting more aware of their food in general, I think, and natural food versus processed food, and how bad processed food is, and supermarket food tends, not all of it, of course, but it's nice to get, wild, you know, wild food, whether that's foraged or from a small farm or what have you. Um, what would you say to people who want to get into um, this and um, are a little bit concerned as uh, about the things we've mentioned in about the identification? What would be the way for someone to just start out? Would it be to get your book well, and, or it's, go on one of your, your tours? Well, well, both, really. Um, there's, yeah, there's, there's no substitute for a good book. Don't trust what you read on the internet. And that... Not, that goes for websites I've seen there's some websites on the internet that I've got plenty of mistakes on them mm-hmm. and absolutely don't trust identification or advice you get from just random people on the internet because a lot of them do not know what they're talking about mm. and there's sort of this competition for kudos of, of, of being an expert on this so people tend to to bullshit. Uh, some people who pretend they know more than they do, and you know, somebody will post a photograph of some mushroom, and they'll confidently come in and say it's X, mm. uh, and they've kind of yeah. quite often never seen yeah. X. They've, they're just trying to show off. So mm. be very, very careful about that. So a, mm. a decent book um, is is an invaluable resource. The benefit of going out with someone who actually knows what they're doing just speed that speeds up the process because mm-hmm. once you've seen a fungus not just mm-hmm. in a book but in the flesh you've seen where it grows you've seen what it feels like you've smelt it mm-hmm. maybe you've tasted it next it's a hell of a lot easier to recognize that mushroom and be and be much more confident that you've mm-hmm. got the identification right um if you've actually seen it before mm-hmm. so and and if you've with an expert, you know definitely that they're, you know, provided they know what they're talking about, that, that, yeah. that they are, that mushroom is what you say. And mm. once, so it, it just, it, it speeds up the mm. familiarisation process, especially if it's a good time for mushrooming, yeah. you're lucky and it's a peak of a good season, because you might get to see 30 or 40 species of fungi. So that certainly, you know, it, it fast tracks you. Mm. Um, whereas if you go out just on yourself with a book, it, it, you know, it's going to take much longer yeah. for you to be sure that you found what you found. So I think think really it's one of those things that has to be done the old school way that was done hundreds of years ago, whereby they have to know, really need to know someone like you. You can't rely, I think it probably needs to be made clear, you can't rely on the internet because also you can't see who that guy is who writes... Um, the, the internet is, is well it's just you can't tell if it's a 14 year old kid absolutely from, yeah. uh, I mean that's just the problem with the internet in yeah. general trust, yeah. knowing which sources of information yeah. to trust absolutely. and which yeah. not to except in this particular case if, if, if the person has got it wrong it's, it's mm. and you're eating it it's you who's going to die you know this yeah. is this is not just getting some wrong piece of fake news this well, is exactly, this, this yeah. is your life it's like depends on it. yeah, so you are yeah. responsible for for identifying what goes into your mouth well, do, do, yeah. not, do not trust third parties unless you're very certain you know who they are mm. and they know what we're talking about um and do you what kind of when you use it day to day at home do you do you are there sort of specific ways you use your mushrooms are you making soups are you making what do you how do you um, yes, specific mushrooms are used in specific, specific ways. Um, in the autumn, when I'm using a lot of stuff fresh, they tend to just get used as a side vegetable, mm-hmm. although the, there's lots of radically different tastes. So what goes with what, you know, and doesn't go with what. Some mm-hmm. mushrooms, you can't, you can't just substitute them for normal mushrooms and expect the recipe mm-hmm. to work. Um, 
throughout the rest of the year, there's certain specific things that dry well. Um, and um, do you pickle them as well? Some can you pickle mushrooms? Actually, I'll, I'll go and get you some dry yeah, black trumpets. They're, the, they're the, the best of the best. Thanks. Yeah. Because I know pickling is something that's getting really fashionable. Pickling is a, uh, a specifically difficult one. Uh, unless you know exactly what you're doing when you're pickling, there's, the problem is there's a very real risk of botulism. Oh, uh, botulinum okay. to- yeah. to- to- toxin, which is the most toxic. We've got to tread carefully. The I'm single gonna... <laughs> most toxic substance known to science if you get botulism, you know, yes, and this yes, is the yes, stuff yes. they inject into the people in their faces. So, yeah, basically, you can pickle, if you pickle them and use them within two or three mm. weeks, that's fine. But okay. if you're going to leave them for any length mm-hmm. of time, you've got to be absolutely certain you know what you're doing. Um, that it's been totally sterilised. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this, yeah. Is, this, is, this is before also, you pickle yeah, them. Yeah, this is also why home canning kits mm. aren't, have never caught on because mm. unless you know exactly what you're doing, it's actually quite dangerous. Um, okay. Drying is a lot easier. Um, because the, the reason I mentioned the pickling is just because there's this new um, also uh, awareness about microbiome and um, the bacteria that we have in our gut, etc. And pickling, apparently, there's loads of... Uh, or the, I think it's part of the what the, posi- the good bacteria feed on and there's also plenty of probiotic in pickles. Yeah, that's it. You're right. Yeah, so. <laughs> so hence why I was just wondering whether... That's uh, I haven't thing. tried that with mushrooms. Yeah, Kathy's the fermenter in the house. I, I fermented other things, but not mushrooms. But I was thinking... Luna, out the way. something when you were squashing the mushrooms between plates and salting? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's halfway okay. towards... Uh, yeah, so actually, yeah, it is related. Yeah. That, I mean, we were talking about rustlers before. Um... um um, in uh, the ones that are well, a lot of them are listed poisonous. Mm-hmm. Uh, are traditionally considered poisonous, and and in the in the Western this is Europe, the as you imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, I mean, let's have a let's well on the, the the first mushroom in the book. Um, there it is. Um, it's called the sickener. Um, why is it called the sickener? Well, because it's, it's actually one of the very few mushrooms to have a traditional old English name, and it makes you violently sick if you. Uh, yeah, I'll put a picture of this on the when uh, I put it on. If, the, if the, you the, eat it raw or just cook it normally, oh. that's it's called Russula emetica, oh. and it oh. will make you violently okay. ill. Um, it's traditionally very popularly eaten in Russia, mm-hmm. uh, but you have to know how to prepare it, and what you have to do with that and the other poisonous oh. russulas mm-hmm. is where you boil them twice and throw the water away, and then you. Um, cover them in salt, lots of mm-hmm. salt, and compress them. Okay. Sometimes with flavouring, like black currant leaves, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, they then sort of end up f- fermenting or pickling in, in in the residual juices and and the salt. So they okay. kind of end up pickled in mushroom juice and brine, wow. and and, okay. and 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 they're compressed as well. And you end up after a few days with this kind of really strong tasting, slightly salty. You wash, you wash some of the salt up. For what you. did you say you compress them with? Well, I, I just kind of right. stick them between two plates and put okay. something heavy on them in the fridge. Right. Um, I don't know what the Russians do, but uh, and, and this probably the, 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 vodka, right? the result. <laughs> well, no, actually, that's what, what happens is that they serve these these mushrooms once they've prepared in this way as an order with with a shot oh. of vodka. So oh, it's a starter. You get the plate full of these these fermented for whatever pickled mushrooms and and with a shot of vodka and that's a starter 
And that's so. This is you know. This is this is okay. really popular in Eastern Europe. You were going to show me. Sorry, I, I yeah. We were talking about drying. Um, and these are and what I do with mushrooms. These these are black trumpets. Which okay. and then there was an absolute glut of these last year. Was a absolutely superb year for um, Horn of Plenty or, or, or black trumpets. I've never oh, seen wow. so many. Yeah. Okay. Um, so and these are, these are black trumpets. These okay. are black trumpets. And 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 have a sniff of that. And take. Wow, <laughs> gosh, yeah, and that really is, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they they uh, smell. Yeah, absolutely. I can't make, think of what it reminds me of, but well, <laughs> black trumpets. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, those make really make a difference to to casseroles and stews. Mm. I mean, one of my favourite, absolute favourite things to do with this is a lamb shanks. Oh, sorry. oh yeah, that sounds so, great. So yeah, yeah lamb shanks, lot of slow cooked mm. lamb shanks with these, and uh, and it's it's absolutely mm. delicious. You. Um, Reduce the sauce down at the end, and you've just mm. got this intense. So what was already that into the gravy, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it, the, the, with the, 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 it's already that dish is with lamb shanks in red wine is already really quite a strong oh, flavoured yeah. dish. But with these in them, it just makes it something really supercharged, quite okay. special. Um, <laughs> okay, good, good one. Black trumpets, and then these are. What are well, well, I was going to say that last year was um, uh, particularly. Uh, uh, great year, not just for black trumpets, but for um, everything else in that genus. And I actually came across some really quite rare species. This is one of the photos that's changed in my book because I'd, 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 I'd never seen this this rare relative of a black trumpet before. Um, I have to work out where it is. Hold on, here we go. So Chanterelle family, and um, so this is a photo that the, okay. in, the, in the original version of the book I had to use a stock photo because I'd, I'd never found them before. So this is page one six nine. I'm going to try to put this on for for people that are listening. It's page one six nine on the on Jeff's in Jeff's book in second in the in the updated yeah. book. Well, uh, this so this is called an ashen Chanterelle, mm. and we'd actually we, I was out with Kathy and um, in a woodland we've just taken the dog for a walk in a woodland we'd been many times before, and there were black trumpets all over the place. And she said, "These there's more black trumpets there." And I, and I took one look at these, turned them over, and they've got they've got these gills underneath. Uh, and it's like, so they look like more yeah. like a um, a winter chanterelle, which is another one in the same genus, but they're black. Yeah. Um, and these have also a, a subtly different flavour all of their own. Um, mm-hmm. So. If, I don't know if you. So this is the same. You said this is the same the, the, family kind this of. Is, same yeah. Genus. So, so, yeah. Have, have a sniff the whole. The, 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 the stick your nose can in I the jar. Do my best. Eat it raw yeah. if you like. Yeah. But that's it's almost a kind of mm, minty, aniseedy mm. overtone to it. Yeah, there is actually. Yeah. Uh, I don't know any other funky that smells like that. That's mm. this is this is. And so you've just dried those. That's just dried mm. dried those. Yeah. So that's really special. That's the, mm. the only year I've ever seen them. Um, mm. I'm not sure about eating them raw. Never tried eating mm. a, a raw ashen chanterelle. Yeah, obviously it's. I can see how that would taste in a gravy in the lamb next to a lamb shank or in a peppercorn with some peppercorns in a on a steak or something. Mm. I keep meaning to try baking some bread with. Oh, that would salmon. be amazing, actually. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, soup's the thing you kind of think of most often and yeah. in a salad. But it feels like some of these mushrooms are so special that you wouldn't want to ne- necessarily kind of, I wouldn't say waste, but um, you want to make it into something a little bit more special, I suppose, if um, so rare. Some mushrooms, um, 
actually lend themselves to going in salad. Not very many. With mm. wild mushrooms, you wouldn't usually use them in salad unless they're in absolutely pristine mm. condition. So no maggots. Mm. Very fresh. Sorry, sorry. It's sacrilege, isn't it? Sorry. Mm. Yeah, they're not great raw. I've, had a, I've sure. had a long drive, so i am just got a bit of drink. Um, oh, it's something going against a glass of water as well. Um, hold on a second. No worries. Um... Yeah, so, and then these ones, these are, these almost look like ban. Oh, they are bananas. Those are the mushrooms. Okay, I thought, I thought, God, I these are, these are amazing looking things. <laughs> Shows how much I know about, I better not go foraging, right? <laughs> I'm going to definitely eat the poisonous one. Sorry, I can't remember where we were. The mushroom and the banana No, sorry, so no, it's just interesting to know, obviously this is making a resurgence and the UK, as we've discussed, kind of has a history of being perhaps microphobe, um, a bit afraid of mushrooms more than the microphobic. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so now, as we were saying, there's this resurgence, as you've probably noticed a lot more of that, but than most people, and people getting back into it. So I'm just curious about how you're using um, the mushrooms uh, yourself, being an expert on it, as that's probably going to eventually pervade into the. Um, well, like, I, I see it in the supermarket. I experiment all the time. Um, yeah, so and, I mean supplements as well. I know in the, in the I've heard of some mushrooms like lion's mane. It's meant meant to be very good for your right. Well, that's brain and, okay. That particular mushroom is um, off of the foragers menu because it's so rare in the UK. Okay. Uh, it's it's a protected uh, across the whole of Europe. It's it's more common in North America. Um, right. Okay. So that there's 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 three of them um, actually in the same genus. And last year, the first year, I saw one of those as well. Um, oh, you actually saw that. So they're very rare, but you saw one in the UK. Yeah. I didn't see lion's oh. mane. Um, so where are we? Because I got some just out of interest because I heard about it and I said, "Oh, this because my dad is." <laughs> This is He's this is down a bit, so I thought I'll have some of these. But I don't know. They, so they this is this well. is what you're calling lion's mane, um, mm. or bearded tooth is in the English okay. thing. That's not my photo. I've only ever seen that once. That mm. was many many years ago. But it has t two rarer relatives, and this was this was a photo taken last autumn. Um, uh, somebody, a friend of mine, found this in the woodland about ten miles away from here and gave me a tip things. off. So. Um, um, but, the, but sorry, did you say... I know this wasn't your photo. These weren't your photos. This is my photo okay. from, from, from gotcha. last year. And the one on the previous page, was that in the UK? Uh, I don't know whether that's taken okay. in the UK, but it, mm. it, it, it it's not my photo. Interesting. Just, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, um, I saw it once upon a time in the UK when I was about 20, so mm. nearly 30 years mm. ago. Um, uh, and I know of someone else who's reported it in the UK, and, and I went to try and find it where they said it was, right. and I couldn't find it. But I've never seen it since then. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So, in other words, I guess you don't. There's no reason for you to take any special mushrooms because you've got obviously this diverse. Oh, uh, uh, you well, you're talking about health. Yeah, but um, the health, because like, a lot of them have. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, well, okay. There, there's the, in most cases the mushrooms that are most famous for their health properties mm. aren't the ones that you eat for the culinary value. Right. In fact, most of them are almost inedible. They're, they're hard bracket fungi that need to be ground up into a powder. Or okay. soaked and made into a tea, mm -hmm. um, and there's a few of those included in my book. But okay. on, on the whole, they are not the same as the ones that are, are, are best for their culinary value. Lion's mane or mm -hmm. bearded tooth is an ex exception in that it's good to eat and it's got some well-known health properties. Mm -hmm. And there are a few like that. But yeah, the, if you pick the ten most important medicinal mushrooms, none of them are really on the on 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 the list as as a foraged item gotcha. okay. for food. 
Okay. And yeah, Chaco is a perfect example. I mean, this this looks like a piece of burnt wood. You absolutely can't eat it. It's not food. Yeah. You make right. tea out of it. Okay, so maybe it's almost would it would it even be maybe coming from Asia? So I know that out in China they sometimes come across these. Uh, well, it's, it's, that particular species is a, <coughs> mainly northerly, so okay. it's really quite common in Scotland and across the whole of, of, of subarctic and the northern mm. bits of Europe. It's almost impossible to find this far south, in way from the south of the south coast of England. Um, and then, I mean, I know obviously coming back to you've you've obviously got the, your degree in philosophy, which is and so you've. It's amazing the different facets you've got. You've got the IT, then you've got the philosophy, then you've obviously got the whole wild foraging. Uh, the question I wanted to ask was, do you do you think that your f- degree in philosophy... Philosophy. Um, <laughs> I, I, took, I took magic mushrooms as hallucinogens in my late teens, and it did change my view in the world. It, it certainly... It, it breaks open some preconceptions. It, 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 some things that you believe couldn't... Well, how can you possibly describe what that experience is like to mm. someone who's never had it? It's, it's probably impossible. Um, but not necessarily expanding your mind in terms of philosophy and mysticism. It, it, it just makes you... Actually, I'll tell you, the very first time I took psilocybin, what happened was, was profoundly to do with my perception of time. Um, I felt like... A, a, a hilarious in joke was that time wasn't real, and that, and that in, in, in a way, the world wasn't real. It was like we'd all been acting in a play, and the play was over, and and we were just walking around the set. This and, was uh, in the moment when you'd taken the magic. The first time, first time magic yeah. mushrooms, mm. and uh, and 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 that time wasn't real, and and and, and the physical reality wasn't real, and that this was just obvious, and everybody mm. now knew that, not mm. just me. Everybody mm. knew that. Mm. Um, and but you almost, were by, sorry to interrupt, but were you by yourself? Or no, no, you? I was with a bunch okay. of friends. Um, and, yeah, it's... It, 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 that... It, apart from anything else, it made me realise that my perception of time and space was something inside. Mm. Time and space seemed to not be something out there. Time, in particular, perception of time was, was something internal. Mm. And that is, obviously... It will, well, not obviously, but if, if you study philosophy, you end up with um, the first really important philosopher is Immanuel Kant, and this is his key, well, one of his many key observations is is is, is that time and space are, mm-hmm. are are constructs of the human mind in, to a certain extent, uh, and you know, the, 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 if you want to study what reality is, you've got to study what's going on in here first. How, how can we perceive, how is it possible to perceive a reality is what Kant said. Mm. So there is some sort of connection there, but just taking the magic mushrooms mm. isn't going to mm. lead you to that. Um, yes, I, 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 uh, the, the answer is, in, 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 a, in the greater sweep mm. of things, I, I think having been familiar with the effect of hallucinogens made studying philosophy easier because it just allows your mind to go to other Mm. places and and to to think about reality in a a wider way Mm. more easily than Mm. than if you'd never had that experience Um, interesting okay and in terms of they've obviously there's also this idea uh, about evolution and the and about um, the uh, simians kind of (laughs) becoming uh, uh, evolving into human beings and that one there's a theory called this as you're probably aware of the stoned ape theory about that they came across um, 
you know, uh, on the savannah, some, yes. some fungi. The stone date thing, right? Yeah. This is Terence McKenna's theory, and much as I'm fond of Terence McKenna, um, and, you know, as I've alluded to before, I do have some personal connection with the Mayan prophecies and 2012 stuff. I, I'm fond of Terence McKenna, but I'm afraid that the stoned ape theory for me is, is wishful thinking. It's, it's a little bit... Uh, the theory goes that, that because of climate change... It's, it's, it's a theory as to why Homo erectus, which had been wandering around this planet for the best part of two million years, suddenly started heading off, evolving towards Homo sapiens. Mm. Um, the idea being that climate change forced, forced the, the Homo erectus into a different environment and where hallucinogenic mushrooms were more easily encountered. And mm-hmm. this set off via various mechanisms human evolution in a different way. I don't think this is, uh, uh, you know, maybe, uh, I don't think there's any scientific reason mm. to believe this is true. There, there, there are better speculations, more likely speculations for me as to why um, mm-hmm. Homo erectus is headed off towards being Homo sapiens. Um, perhaps I should put this, say at this point that I've long been interested in evolution. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a Christian household, rejected it at age 12, and became a science head in my teens. All I was interested mm-hmm. in was science and music to a certain extent. I studied chemistry, physics, and biology from my A levels. I loved Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm. and in my twenties, I was a bit of an, a, a, an atheist warrior on the internet, fighting those those terrible creationists. So I knew evolution backwards. And then when I got into foraging, I, I, I was particularly interested in human origins and, and, and you know human society before before the invention of farming and and mm-hmm. just that whole series of events that, about how how the human race ended up where it where it is um, so and what so what caused you 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 obviously you came from a very um religious background by the sound of it am I correct uh, well not, said, not very religious but I was mm. taken to church every Sunday mm. and uh, um, and by the time I was at age 12 I really didn't like it I, I couldn't respect I, I, I couldn't take it seriously I was mm. being told on one half I was being shown Richard At- David Attenborough on the television mm. and, and this story about evolution mm. and then on Sunday I was taken to church and told this completely different story yeah. and the, the real problem was when you asked questions mm-hmm. you know you're 11 12 years old you start questioning yeah things. and you're a and, science head as yeah, you said yeah. so you're and you ask yeah. these questions of the sunday school teachers and their answers were mm. absolutely useless it was yeah. completely obvious to me age 12 that these people didn't know how to answer my questions right and they were just really wished that i wasn't asking them um uh, <laughs> I <bet they> did. <laughs> and, and it just meant i had no respect whatsoever <laughs> for these people i just <laughs> Why do you believe this rubbish? It's like Father Christmas. And and nobody was there to explain mm. to me, you know, that maybe this was a metaphor and it shouldn't be taken seriously. And there might be a, literally, you know, they, yeah. there might be a deeper meaning. No one said that. They just told me there was this Jesus mm. and he was born Almost and kind he, of fundamental, he saved yeah. humanity by dying on mm. the cross and, and what, sorry, and yeah. yeah, and God made the world in seven days. Mm. Okay. So, gotcha. So you, so you then um, sort of rejected that um, and then you you became interested in evolution and the idea the idea about how well evolution to me is the greatest story ever told. It, what, 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 what could be more fascinating yeah. than the story of of, of, of how single celled yeah. organisms became human beings mm. over, over hundreds of millions of years? Mm. It, it is absolutely fascinating. Um, 
yeah, I, I lapped that up. Um, because also mushrooms are, as far as I'm aware, were around before plants even, I think. Uh, or, or no, certainly before well, humans, well, well, they... they millions of years before uh, the, the mushrooms are more closely related to animals and plants so if you mm. f- follow the path backwards um, at some point single celled organisms which were neither plants nor animals split into, into mm. plants and animals and the plants started photosynthesising and, 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 the, and the, the ones that were just called animals didn't um, fungi split off the animal branch quite soon after that so you've got kind of Plants go off one way, and then the other yeah. branch goes to, 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 to animals and fungi, and quite soon fungi. And, and since a very long time ago, all three have been co-evolving. Because <coughs> mushrooms, and again, my, my limited knowledge, I'm sure you'll correct me, but they seem to have a way of <coughs> connecting with the environment around them in terms of apparently some of these um, puff balls, they're able to give off a, sm- a scent that... Is different for depending which whether it's an animal that approaches to make sure that they attract them and cause them to send the spores out and therefore um, um, pollinate. Well, or okay, most, most fungi. There are a lot of fruits, for example, depend on on consumption by animals to dis- and distribution. Mm-hmm. It, fungi very rarely, very few fungi are like that. Um, they tend to um, rely on um, wind distribution. But there's one very very important exception to that and that's truffles now, truffles yeah. unlike most fungi grow underground mm-hmm. and if your wind dispersal is your mechanism when growing underground is not a particularly smart move mm. um, and that's this is why truffles taste so attractive they've got such a strong smell they're mm. deliberately designed right. to attract mm. an animal to go and dig mm. them up and eat them and, mm. and, and, and the spores survive going through the gut of the animal so Truffles are the the example of 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 of, 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 of a fungus that wants to be eaten, um, mm-hmm. and because it's it's key to its distribution strategy. But for most fungi, that's, that doesn't apply. They're, they're wind wind distributed. Um, so the but there I think there are a lot of other examples of how mushrooms, and I know there's an experiment. Perhaps you've heard about this. Uh, the point I was going to make is that mushrooms behave almost more like animals and almost appear to have. And it sounds totally bonkers for, especially for a science head like yourself or people that are that. But they have an awareness or an ability to almost have a con, have a, a way of think or strategy, which is probably um, the result of evolution. But for example, this experiment about the spore molds. This was Japanese. Company. I don't know. I think you're yeah. getting fungi mixed up with slime molds, which okay. is a lot of people do. They're not all the right. same thing at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. So slime molds or myxomycetes are they look a lot like fungi but in actual fact they're much more closely related to amoeba there's like almost like a colony of, of amoeba like organisms that they come together to, to when to breed and at this point they look like some fungi but yeah they, these are not these Thank aren't fungi at all they're an entirely different um I see. Okay. Uh, I need to take a, a, a yeah, break, yeah, go a, for a, it. A, a loop, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, what I was, yeah, you go for it. I was just for the camera. I'm going to say, oh, there was this sp- slime mold which um, the Japanese researchers uh, put into a maze, and then they had a food source at the exit, and uh, the slime mold managed to, in an apparently intelligent way. Uh, find its way to the food source, and then the second time they put it into the into the maze, it did the same thing again. But as Jeff has just educated me, slime mold is more a colony of amoebas than a than a fungi. So uh, <laughs> so that puts paid to that that idea. 
Um, Luna. Uh, so yes, I know. Yeah. I know the slime mold experiment you're talking about. Okay. Um, and actual fact, this is interesting connection with. I didn't just study philosophy; it was philosophy and cognitive science. And there's okay. a connection with neural networks and artificial intelligence. There, what we've got, what you've got here is what looks very much like intelligent behaviour. Yeah. But it's intel emergent intelligent behaviour. So it's like the sort of intelligent behaviour you get from an ant colony. Gotcha, an ant yeah. colony. An individual ant's really thick. It's not got many yeah. cognitive uh -huh. power at uh -huh. all. But when you get a whole colony of ants together, uh -huh. they are capable of, of making decisions and, and, and building these uh -huh. amazing structures and, and, and coming up with a, a survival strategy that uh -huh. looks remarkably like it, it, it's the sort of thing that an intelligent organism uh -huh. with a brain has done. Yeah. And this is the same as the slime moulds that were kind of trying to find the most efficient distribution network I think well, the, the version of it I saw is they they provided the slime mould with food at, at, at um, points that were That's similar the one, to yeah. the Japanese um, the main parts of Tokyo and, and the, the slime mould yeah. came up with the, the same structure as the Japan, as the Tokyo underground it, because yeah. it was the most efficient way of connecting all these nodes And but it's the same thing it's emergent intelligent behaviour in the, in the, 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 all of these Mm. amoeba-like organisms together behave like an ant colony and and they create emergent mm. intelligent behaviour uh, it's not conscious I yeah. don't think anyway well we can talk about panpsychism and think everything's conscious but it, it's, it's yeah. intelligence okay. rather than no, that's, that's what I wanted to get your take on because and then also the idea that the mushrooms affect everyone in, or every species they seem to have their way of sucking them in or beguiling them to do what they need them to do in order to to further the species, the, the that fungi species. Whether it's um, kids love kicking the the spore, the little puff balls that mm. puts the spores everywhere. Well, uh, or people like pigs like sniffing out the truffles and tr and help to. Um, well, suppose I've heard of that. To be honest, the kick the kicking stuff is more connected with mycophobia. And okay. the, the British children are taught that mushrooms are evil and then go around and kick them. And in most cases, this doesn't do the mushrooms any good mm. at all. Puffballs are a particular mm. special case because yeah. they can be kicked around for years. Mm. Well, almost years. Um, well, there's one in my garden, actually. I found last year, <laughs> just before the game fair. Um, and uh, it's, it's still slowly releasing spores. It's actually mm. stuck on a branch on my apple tree. Um, we know that. Um, oh, <laughs> so it's growing now up on the tree. No, oh. it, it's, it's distributing <laughs> yeah, its spores. <laughs> Like it's just the, the, the brown what's, what's left of it where are you going to get it <laughs> Jeff's going it's not disgusting I'm not going to go and get it no honestly no no <laughs> if, well especially if you if it's in your garden and you're enjoying it I don't want to you don't want to destroy it or whatever I'm enjoying it uh, so that, yeah, so, <laughs> well look I know you have a passion for it so <laughs> puff, puff balls are designed to, to blow around or be kicked around and, and still distribute spores mm. a year later there was a very okay. special occasion giant puff balls uh, no special exception. Sorry, I'm kind of looking. I'm just make, trying to make sure I got the, 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 the some topics that, we, that we're talking about. I am li I'm listening to you. I just don't want to. Um, the, the, now the other the other one is the other one is about um, with the, the psilocybin. Coming back to that, there's been a lot of research recently about the positive effects on depression. I think there've been some research studies done. I mean, um, is that something that you think there's further, uh, you know, potential for or? Um, no, I. To be honest, I'm not uh, 
spent too much time researching yeah. that. Um, I think in in certain cases of, of, of psychological problems of one mm. sort or another, I can imagine that taking hallucinogens might unlock something, uh, kind of clear a blockage maybe. I, that, that, that seems to me intuitively like it might make sense. Um, uh, and that, I think that's about all I can Yeah, I yeah can okay, fair enough. No, it's just... <clears throat> it's, it's just mushrooms and fungi obviously we talked about the some of the more mundane aspects of it and it, basically i just wanted to touch on this the psychedelic aspect which we which we've obviously been talking about as well and just there's this kind of fascinating angle about why that is interacts with human why fungi interact with the human mind in this way and is there some well, that, reason that is a, other than serendipity for that um <clears throat> that's a massive question um uh, the problem is, uh, science, after 400 years after the scientific revolution, has still got very little idea what consciousness is. In fact, the word consciousness doesn't really have any strict scientific meaning because um, science is based on, on materialism. It kind of methodologically starts by assuming that the, the universe is purely physical and... and uh, it's very difficult if you start with the assumption that only physical things exist or you're only interested in the interactions in the physical world to try and come up with, with explaining what consciousness is because consciousness appears to be something extra. Um, this is called the mind-body problem and it's an absolute humdinger. It's the biggest problem facing modern science to the point that it can't even define what the problem is. Um, if you believe in a, just a material reality, then all there is is a brain. There is no room in that model for consciousness. And if you've got no room in your model for consciousness, trying to explain how a, a, a physical chemical that, that, that affects consciousness in such a radical way, this is, this is beyond the realms mm. of, of, of science as mm. it currently exists. Mm. We don't know, we simply don't know the answer. You know, what, if we get an answer to the question what is the physical structure in a brain that is responsible for consciousness? Why, what is it special about animals, creatures with brains that, are, that mean they can be conscious but other, a rock or a car alarm isn't or a computer isn't? If we get an answer to that question, we might be able to say how psilocybin mm. interacts with that, mm. that physical structure and then we may be somewhere on the way of answering that question. At the minute, we're nowhere. This mm. is... This is, is, this is yeah, threatening the very foundations mm. of of of, um, of of the scientific mm. picture of reality. Um, uh, there's an important book came out actually a few years ago, um, yet to be recognised, I think, for its true importance by a guy called Thomas Nagel, mm-hmm. um, who is actually from an atheist background, but who mm-hmm. who fully recognises the severity of the mind-body problem, and he's basically saying this is so serious; it doesn't just affect neuroscience. Mm-hmm. It threatens to undermine the whole of, of, of modern science, including evolution, but, and, and for very good reasons. Because if, if you can't explain consciousness in terms of physical reality, you're going to have a real problem explaining how it evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, I mean, when, when you've got a problem of, of, of evolved features have to have a, um, a uh, survival benefit, survival of the fittest. So you get a mutation, it causes a physical difference, that mm-hmm. physical difference somehow changes behaviour, and this includes reproductive yeah. fitness. Yeah. That's how evolution yeah. works. But if, if consciousness is not physical, um, you can have a mutation, and it can 
perhaps create this structure that allows you to be conscious. But unless consciousness is causal over matter, unless this consciousness actually can change your physical mm. behaviour, then it can't mm. in, in, in change reproductive fitness. It can't be selected for. Mm-hmm. So natural selection doesn't work for it unless you introduce mental physical causality. And mental physical causality is the thing that... Mm-hmm. The, you know, that's exactly what... what, what scientific atheists want to ignore to mm-hmm. deny because that smacks of a soul that's free will that's you can't have minds causing physical stuff that's, that's scientific heresy it's exactly the sort of thing that Richard Dawkins mm. would find turn to make apoplectic mm-hmm. so okay. so there's real you know this is a huge area of, mm. of, of, of controversy and 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 potential future discoveries um, of one sort or another um, well, right point? now we don't have the answers Gotcha. What was the what did was the book by Thomas Nagel? Do you remember? That? Um, Don't worry if not. It's really called. Look it up, and I'll put it in the notes. Um, it's called, and the name has gone. Um, uh, but I guess part of it is mind. It's, it's called Mind and Cosmos. Um, yeah. Why uh, the Darwinian mat- materialistic theory of reality is almost certainly wrong, or something like that. Okay, because you would have thought and. Forgive me if I get this um, the wrong way around, but if if pe- if people's consciousness was expanded to some extent, whether that by be just by them sitting in a field and thinking about things and getting in, enlightened, or not necessarily being enlightened, but just making different decisions, uh, which then lead to their gene pool um, with like-minded individuals um, f- furthering their that that sort of behavior. This, this I think is with the difference between that and the, the and the. Uh, stoned ape theory we were talking about before the stoned ape theory is about physical evolution it's trying to claim that this is was something to do with why Mm. homo erectus became homo sapiens what is far more likely it seems to be and what i think Mm. you're suggesting there is is cultural evolution Mm. which is which is what how certain groups of, of of humans encountering hallucinogens it it has an effect on their culture Mm. maybe shows the seeds of religion and that, in turn, gives them a selective advantage as a group. And so their culture mm. survives better than another culture that, that doesn't have this. And that's a, a different sort mm. of evolution. It is evolution in a way, but it's, it's the evolution of culture rather than the evolution of, of, of biological features. But, but you were just saying about consciousness and the evolution. And, it's an, and I thought the point that you were making was that it's not that consciousness can't have that mutation, which then leads to it evolving. Um, I, sorry, I'm getting a little lost now. No, you were saying the mind-body problem and how... Yeah, um, that has, has implications for physical evolution because it, it, it makes it extremely difficult to, uh, to explain how consciousness could have evolved. Right, I see, okay. Um, gotcha, yeah. Uh, which means if we've got a feature, or, and this is what, what Thomas Nagel's book is about, he's basically saying... It looks to me like his conclusion at the end is likely we have some sort of um, n- uh, non-religious teleology, which mm-hmm. basically means that evolution was somehow destined to produce conscious organisms without being designed by God. It's just sort of the universe is conspiring to, to, to make this mm-hmm. happen. Um, it's teleological, so it's, 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 it was always destined to go in that direction, but without the God did it bit. Um, but this is obviously even 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 a non-religious teleology is is absolutely you know this is it goes against the grain of four hundred years of of, of of scientific progress. It seems to be fundamentally 
going in another direction. But I think what Nagel is actually saying, if you've got to, instead of thinking of it going in another direction, think of it as, as changing the foundations. So instead of it screwing up something up here at the end, take the whole body of science and take it away from its material foundations and place it in a different, deeper context. So it's changing something underneath mm-hmm. rather than changing something on the top. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. But it's still absolutely revolutionary this is really really important stuff um and it actually it also feeds into quantum mechanics and and the and the challenges that, that of interpreting quantum mechanics that the, 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 the science is 100 years since quantum mechanics was invented and uh, discovered mm. and we're still trying to come to terms with the philosophical implications of it and it's, this is all linked together with it um, it, this yes. might go some way to explaining why we're having so much trouble trying to understand how quantum physics can possibly be true because that mm. underneath foundation is yeah. wrong if you change well, the, that, yeah. that, 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 the context then maybe it might make more sense Kira. well I guess yeah part of it is uh, with the problem with quantum mechanics is so counterintuitive because the way I think it comes back to what you said before about time being a kind of construct of well, in the case of quantum mechanics, it's because the observer seems to be a, playing yeah. a key role in it. The, 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 yeah. Until until you observe what something mm. is, it's it's every, you know it's everywhere, everywhere yeah. which way at the same time, which it's totally mm. uh, counterintuitive. Yes. But if you think that there's something that the physical world isn't all there is, if if, if the whole model is wrong, and 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 mm. consciousness is of cosmic significance then mm. then this makes this sits perfectly well with this idea that the observer is, is mm. that there's this thing called uh, an observer a participating observer that that is helping de- determine the, the physical mm. evolution of the universe well uh, yeah the other it all fits together i know that there's a debate about this amongst uh, quantum physicists but the other idea is some people say well i think there was someone recently who said this proves there's no god because and I can't remember his full argument, but then the, uh, the response to that is about the wave function. So the, um, you might know more about quantum physics than I do, but ev- everything kind of, every time you observe something, there, well, before you observe it, so Schrodinger's cat or whatever, there's kind of this wave where it's alive and dead. And then when you open it, the wave function collapses and you see the, the res- what's there. But the only way that you can see what's there and that it can exist is when the wave function collapses. So everyone has to, so it's, there has to that's supposed to be evidence of God because someone has to see the wave function collapse. So here, where that collapses, then someone has to witness this street, and someone has to witness the Earth, and someone has to witness the universe, and someone has to. Which some physicists argue means God is the final observer at the back. Absolutely. Well, that's, <laughs> this is what Bishop Berkeley said um, before Kant. He basically basically said that this is idealistic theories of reality or neutral monist. That that uh, yeah, um, nothing exists until it's observed, and well, that leaves what happens to the universe that isn't observed, and and then the answer is you know, God is always observing it when when nobody else is. But um, I'm not sure this yeah. proves that God yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. It, it, it perhaps gives you some idea. Yeah. It limits what 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 God might be. Mm. But I was wondering whether because some people who are proponents and t- were uh, consuming a lot of magic mushrooms they kind of say they they put forward or even another uh, chemical dmt they say yeah well i've tried this... that too once okay all right well that's interesting um but the the idea being there's there's two schools of thought and the, the scientific and rational perspective is um this is just a chemical interaction with your brain it's not actually helping you 
um, perceive things better. And then there's the other angle, which I think is very interesting, if perhaps less um, acceptable, which is that it breaks down what you said before about time being a construct of the brain. It kind of goes, ooh, put that to one side now because I've got this insight. And a bit like when you said when you first took the magic mushrooms, it was almost like, ooh, we've stepped off the stage. Now we can all see, you know, you can you you rid yourself of the constructs which kind of um, okay. prevented you from understanding things. So, we, what, sorry, what so, so the question you? being, it seems to me that you refute it. You don't believe that because... Uh, it, 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 I'm, I'm just curious as to your perspective on that. Do you think that perhaps some of these things, Silas Ivan, the, the, do you think to a certain extent it helps with this whole argument uh, or this whole idea of? Um, I, I don't think it necessarily helps to resolve the argument. Um, I think fundamentally, what you think is going on. Well, the mind-body problem is such that that it, it, it poses a real problem. For people who just believe that the physical reality is all there is, because mm. they can't account for consciousness. If you reject materialism, then all sorts of, of possibilities open up as to what other sort of metaphysical thing that might be going on. Yeah. I, I think what my own personal belief would be tending towards the, the general... If, if there's something that all mystics seem to agree on, it, it's, it's something right at the heart of, of Hinduism... Uh, Schrodinger went uh, uh, agreed with, and Schopenhauer agreed with, uh, and simply summed up as Atman is Brahman, which means uh, Atman is 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 the infinite source of reality. It's just mm. the singularity, the, the 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 one infinite pure being. Uh, Bra uh, uh, Brahman, uh, sorry, that's Brahman is is one infinite pure being. Atman is the root of personal consciousness, mm -hmm. so it's like your almost like the, your observer, your soul, the, the, the one persistent thing that, that makes you you, that, that, that's at the back of your being. That claim is Atman is Brahman. Um, so we are, all of us, uh, we, we're not individual souls. Mm. We, we are all, in, in, mm -hmm. in, in Western speak, we, we are all the, the ultimate source. If that is true, then... The idea that taking taking hallucinogens like psilocybin or DMT could open up under new understanding it, it makes perfect sense mm. that, that 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 is possible. Personally, my experience of it, I I haven't experienced oneness with God mm. due to taking hallucinogens, but I do believe that that this claim at the the root of, of Hinduism is true. I I, I I I have subscribed to that point of view philosophically. In which case. The idea that, that hallucinogenic drugs could open pathways to that sort of, of, of revelation is, you know, it, that's not surprising mm. at all. It's mm. not happened for me. I can't. Mm. I can easily believe so, it would happen for other people. So, do you? Is it, what happened when you took DMT? Was that an interesting experience for you, or do you want to talk about that, or not really? That, well, if if, <laughs> if, if describing, I, I think perhaps you can use a metaphor here. Some taking some drugs like alcohol or cannabis, or, or maybe some of the stimulants, is a bit like running a different program on your computer and, and if so taking taking psilocybin or, or LSD is a bit like changing the operating system right DMT is chucking the computer away <laughs> and replacing it with something else right okay. um, it, which you can't define <laughs> I guess it, rather yeah. than you, you can't even open your eyes if you try to open your eyes on DMT you kind of get 
15 <laughs> versions of, of, of reality all happening at the same time. Wow. You just close your eyes again. Amazing. And so, yeah, the difference is that the, 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 the psilocybin and LSD modify your, radically modify your experience of reality. Mm. DMT, you close your eyes and experience something else entirely. It's just, it started mm. with amazing psychedelic visuals, mm-hmm. moving colours and patterns beyond anything that, that psilocybin could create. And then that began, figures seemed to appear. Instead of just being geometric shapes, wow. things that, that could be beings appeared. Uh, and Sorry to, to, to interrupt. Where, could, do you mind just telling us where you were and when, when this I happened? was in yeah. a, or, a friend's yeah. living room in Brighton. With someone else there. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I think taking DMT on your own is probably not a very good idea. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I so, think you, you need somebody and, there babysitting you. Yeah, sorry to cut you off there, but you were saying so th- th- there were visions and you because a lot of people see the same thing, which is why it's quite strange about DMT. Uh, or similar. Things. Well, I, 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 to be honest, I haven't done that much research about okay. what other people okay. do when they do DMT. Okay. It, 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 all I can say is it was it was an it was in another league compared to any other league yeah. that I've taken. Um, I, I, as to explain what it means, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. Sorry, I know we're going on a bit of a tangent from the mushrooms, but I just thought that's interesting um, as well. Um, I'm conscious that the battery is going a little bit now, and so um, I think. Uh, in terms of just people that are watching and listening, um, just to recap, you've got your book out, Edible Mushrooms, by Jeff Dan, D A N. You can get it on Amazon. Where else can you get the book? Uh, well, well, you can all, all your normal online yeah, normal retailers online, and big online. bookshops. Most comprehensive book on uh, yeah. Northern European fungi foraging ever published. Yeah, it is a it is a fantastic book, and it actually um, reverting to what you said earlier, the, it's amazingly well written and really compelling. Um, there are two sections to it. There's the identification and um, the, the the pink bit at the beginning, which is which is just an interesting background and history about foraging, etc., um, and sort of best practice. Um, Jeff, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time this morning. Thank you. Okay, guys, that's it. What a fantastic podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to Jeff Dan. And thanks a lot to, also to Jeff's wife, Kathy. I forgot to mention his new baby, Dorothy, uh, who you may have heard here in the background as well. People, if you like the podcast, please hit the subscribe button or drop me a line. Let me know what you thought about it. Um, and uh, I'm really happy you're listening and I hope you enjoyed it have a good one